0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Dr. Daniel O'Frey, a primary care internist at Bellevue Hospital and clinical professor of medicine at New York University. She's also a prolific writer and author. Her writing has appeared in the New Yorker, New York Times, Slate Magazine, Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, Atlantic, CNN, and National Public Radio, just to name a few. She is also the editor-in-chief of Bellevue Literary Review, which is now enjoying its 20th anniversary. So with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Daniel Ofrey. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here.
0: So for the audience who may not be familiar with Bellevue Literary Review, BLR, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the entity and where it has begun as an outpost of NYU and now where it's growing as an independent literary body?
1: Sure. Well, so BLR started 20 years ago. When I, when I finished my residency, I... Um, It was, you know, I was I trained during the height of the AIDS epidemic, so I had a lot like COVID now, um, a bit of a rough time. So I took some time off and traveled, and it was during those eighteen months of travel that I started to write down stories of my patients that I just sort of had built up and no place to put. And and when I got back to Bellevue NYU as an academic um, internist, I really wanted to incorporate storytelling as part of my daily life. So I began asking my students to, you know, in addition to their regular H and P physical write-ups to, you know, for one of the write-ups ask the patient, you know, what's it like to have diabetes or when you were first told you had emphysema or cancer, what, what was that like? And the students start handing in these really just amazing, beautiful stories. And at the same time, we got a new chair of medicine, Dr. Marty Blazer, who was having his students write an essay, on anything just inspired by a patient interaction. And so an astute colleague got us together and we began thinking, what should we do with our respective piles of wonderful student writings? And we first thought, oh, you know, wouldn't it be great to make like an in-house publication? We'll photocopy and staple it. But as we talked, we recognized that there's really a, a universal, I think, fear, apprehension, worry, concern about our health. And certainly the COVID pandemic has demonstrated that That we're all no matter how strong, healthy, powerful, rich we are, we can all be brought down you know, or vulnerable in the same way. And so we thought, oh, let's start a literary magazine open to the general public, you know, to uh, examine poetry, fiction, and nonfiction as a way of grappling with these these issues that 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 affect all of us. And so we took out a two-line call for submissions, um, and we had a thousand submissions almost overnight wow. that people had so much to say about these issues and they weren't just doctors and nurses as, as we thought but people from all walks of life and so we started publishing the blr it started in 2001 and we published twice a year and so we lived in bellevue hospital and we were part administratively of nyu um we were part and administratively of nyu school of medicine and, and um And so that went along for for 19 years. And then during the COVID pandemic, you know, when things were hit so hard in New York back in the spring of 2020, um, the hospital had to get rid of everything. that wasn't operation. So BLR, amongst many things, just had to go really in the moment. So we uh, unexpectedly um, were finding a new home and and nobody wanted to take anyone on those early confusing months. We decided to go independent. And wow. it turned out to be this blessing in disguise, and so we became an independent nonprofit arts organization, and um, it's been an incredible journey. So now we live independently. We still look to Bellevue as our inspiration and NYU as our, you know, um, kind of founding home, but now we're now we're an independent literary arts organization. We, because we're more virtual, we have editors who live all over the country. We have board members all over the country, from really from all walks of life. And we pivoted during the pandemic from we used to do two readings a year at Bellevue, uh, you know, in person. We now do eight or ten events online on all sorts of topics with writers and speakers from everywhere. We're also starting now to collaborate with other arts institutions. So we've done events on dance and and healing and disability and poetry. We've done work on COVID writing and and on racism using literature and writing. So. Um, we did an event on Parkinson's and poetry. So now we're really kind of launching into this next 20 years with this really wide ranging
0: um, a mandate. It's certainly an interesting time for BLR. You mentioned in one of your videos that you feel that this is both an established institution and a startup. How does that mindset kind of lead you into exploring new collaborations, new channels of artistic expression?
1: Well, it's very exciting because often when you start an organization, you're new in every single part of it, both creating what it is you create, in our case, a journal. And the second side, of course, is making an organization run. I and mean, you can be completely committed to a mission, but if you run out of money, then you can function. Yeah. So we are lucky that we're um, a veteran, that we've had 20 years to develop the journal. So we're not starting up on that, which is really a relief So we can... We can focus our efforts on starting up the organization. So we feel like a startup, and all of a sudden we can do create the organization any way we want. And so having people from different places and walks of life allows us to really get experimental and we can see what sort of events we want to do, what kind of collaborations we can do, and you know, how do we want to fundraise? Because of course, fundraising is a big part of any nonprofit. Um, so we did our first gala this year, and it was really exciting. We've never done one before, and so we didn't have to do a sit-down gala with really bad salmon. We could do an online <laughs> event. We could bring in people again. Abraham Verghese could come be part of us, part of the gala from California, and we could have people from from everywhere. And we had someone from Atlanta. So it, it's um, that startup feel that we can really make this any way we want. Wow, we can work in. We haven't done much in the disability area. Let's you know, let's find dancers to choreograph dances about disability based on poems about disability with dancers who themselves have disability. Well, we can do that. And some of the dancers are in Chicago and some are, you know, uh, on the West coast and we can create that. So that startup feels really exciting. And yet we feel like we've established our creative sort of imprint. We have a journal and we focus on really high quality and accessible poetry, fiction, and creative nonfiction. Um, And now we get uh, upwards of 4,000 submissions a year. So we have You know, lots of wonderful writing to choose
0: from. That's very interesting. Uh, BLR has no shortage of high quality writing, and the number of uh, submissions you'd mentioned went from one thousand now up to four thousand. So there's clearly a interest in the medical world. What is the driving force that leads so many people towards narrative medicine and BLR in particular?
1: Well, I see two parts to to that. So one is just our lives in the situation. And certainly the COVID pandemic has been a fascinating moment, you know, when in our kind of recent memory has the entire planet been focused on the issues of health and healing all at the same time. It's been really unique uh, that we all are really on the same page for, for the moment. Um, but the second is that I think we're all looking for ways to express the things that we're feeling and some of the our standard methods of expressing that are really limited. We have lots of educational materials and writings, uh, you know, about health. There's lots of resources. If you have asthma, there's great, you know, handouts you can get and great websites for that about how to take care of your asthma. But there's not a lot about what does it feel like to not be able to breathe. And and people with asthma, they struggle with both. They certainly, you know, are craving and need help with how to use the inhalers and and you know. Tips on, on on how to get through your life when, when you're living with asthma, but they also are grappling with boy, what does it feel like when maybe your life is at risk at this moment, and you know, and, and maybe someone's dog could it imperil your life. These kind of things really lend themselves to the creative outlets, and I think when we are at moments of vulnerability, we do turn to the arts. You know, I think about so B L R started in two thousand one. Our first issue was in the fall of two thousand one, and we were actually going to press when 9-11 occurred. Which, and, and being in New York, of course, you know, really everything was just turn, turned upside down. Um, and we had planned, you know, in October of that month to have our big, you know, first ever debut gala reading. We had this whole big event <laughs> planned. But, of course, nobody uh, was in any sort of mood to, to be celebrating. And so we debated, should we have an event? Should we not? Is it the wrong thing, the right thing? And we finally said, you know what, let's let's just do it. You know, we've already we had people coming in from Boston and Chicago. We already had a whole thing set up and and we and we'd, we'd reserved the rotunda of Bellevue hospital and we planned it for October 7th and that morning was the invasion of Afghanistan the war started. oh wow oh my god nobody's going to come like we're talk about not being in the mood to, to celebrate and of course you know Bellevue at that moment uh, from nine, the day of 911 people started putting up posters of the missing and we had a huge block long construction wall blank wall and so that was plastered with with uh, posters of people. And and nobody, of course, had the heart to take them down. And so every day you had to walk to work past this really emotional gauntlet of all these people who are largely smiling in their photos, wedding photos, bar mitzvah photos, christening photos, all these beautiful photos. And you know that they were all no longer with us. And and so in order to get to our reading, you had to walk past that. And we had capacity crowd, standing room only, more than 100 people came at this incredibly difficult moment of war and terrorism attack and, and loss of life that was so acute. And it made us really recognize that this is why we have the arts. This is where we go when we are struggling to find meaning at this moment of death and fear and vulnerability, That that is where we go. And so I think it's no accident that during the pandemic, writing and poetry in particular really skyrocketed. It's really, where do you go with these feelings You can go to fact sheets on COVID, and that's helpful for some things. And as a physician, I know they're very important, but that only goes part of the way. There's other parts that we need that don't get addressed by those uh, tip sheets and fact sheets.
0: Certainly, as uh, Dr. Lisa Sanders mentioned in the BLR video, stories give medicine its power. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between information, fact sheet, as you had mentioned, and expression and what the power of a narrative does for healthcare?
1: Yeah, I think one way to look at that is what's the difference between curing and healing, Mm. right? You can show up at at the hospital with pneumonia, with COVID pneumonia, and you can get the right treatment or say an antibiotic for bacterial pneumonia and get cured. That's one thing, but you may have been so scarred and terrified from the breathlessness, from feeling like you're going to suffocate and choke and like you're going to die, and that may stay with you. And maybe people have PTSD from that um, and, and or the family sphere watching someone struggle. that's a different process to be healed from that, no antibiotic will be enough to do that. And so um, so the tip sheet, the facts about pneumonia, those are great. here's how you treat that. Here's what we do. Here's the expected prognosis. We, we need that information. But how do you deal with the part where you felt like ugh, you might drown, you know in, in your own, um, in your own body, that kind of fear, that, that is where people turn to poetry um, to express the, the, the metaphors of, of how we grapple with that. And they're not so easy to, to deal with it. And just knowing, okay, you will get better from this medication. That may not be enough for someone to feel safe again, you know, walking out in this world. So I think that we, we turn to those things because fact sheets are very great for black and white. But when it comes to vulnerability and fear, that's where we need nuance and shades of gray. And that's very hard to do in a PowerPoint or in a checklist. And that's why we read great literature. It's why we read Ivan Ilyich. It's why you know we turn to poetry. Um, and um, that's where it sort of resonates with us because it isn't giving us an easy answer, but it's giving us the ways that people struggle with this and how maybe they find A few morsels or moments of of clarity, of of balm for their soul that, that helps them on this long, slow process of healing.
0: And you allude to healing as almost what Mr. Edward Hirsch alludes to as a two way street that there's the writer and there's the reader, just like there's the patient and there is the physician or nurse provider in general. Is that what you mean by healing versus curing, that reciprocality?
1: Yes, because we know we, as the, the caregivers, the doctors, the nurses, the family members, we can give them the physical care they need. Um, you know, imagine you know you're sick. You wake up with some ache in some nether region of your body, and you can Google that, and maybe you'll find the right answer. And one can imagine in a not so distant future that your computer will then spit out the prescription you need to, and you could be cured. But if and let's say you're taking care of it's your ill child, you know, imagine the fear of a parent whose child is ill that requires more than just a printout from your computer. Um, you And I think we, when we are sick or our family members are sick, we want flesh and blood doctors and nurses who will not just give us the treatment, but also hold our hand, comfort us, allow us to express our fears, maybe to cry, to to unload the, the burden of, of the fear of losing your child or, or yourself. And, and that does require a two-way street and a, and a human connection. And when the poet Edward Hirsch talked about a poem that when it's just printed in a book, it's not fully realized. It's not realized till someone else reads it, and that completes the circle of a poem because it's just words on a page until someone, you know, uh, imbibes that and 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 lives and says, ah, there's a feeling I didn't even know I had. And that's the same thing I think with doctors and nurses and their patients. You know, we don't just give them the medical care; we also give them the comfort and healing. I think that's why. That's why people, when they're sick, they really do want real human care and and being taken care of by a machine or computer, however correct it might be, you know, doesn't quite cut it.
0: In many ways, you could say medicine is a metaphor for poetry, more so than a metaphor for data and technology. Is that why you see so much interest in BLR despite our pervasive trend towards technology driven healthcare?
1: You know, I think it's a fascinating way to, to put it because, yes, we we are enamored of the technology. It's great. It's sexy. It's fun. It's you know, it's really we're, we're all so smitten by it. But I think when we ourselves end up as patients, we uh, have sort of a mixed feeling on it. Like it's great to have that monitor, but you know that leaves a lot wanting. And and also, you know, it makes mistakes. Uh, it you know, it doesn't have intuition in the same way. You know, a nurse comes in and just says, ah, something's going on. I have my sixth sense. This patient is struggling, even if they can't find the data to, to prove that that's so, you know, or, or is hurting or something that that is the, the human side. So I think that is part of what we are all looking for. And, and you know, the technology, it, it sort of sputters when, when we get down to the deep existential issues, it can't comfort you for the, the deep seated fear. It can sort of satisfy this intellectual part, and you know, I'll I'll follow your EKG. That's great and important. I won't, you know, um, underestimate it at all. But it doesn't address so much of what stresses us when you know we see our bodies or our minds beginning to falter.
0: Let's take this concept of intuition and push it a little bit further. I think we all agree that the narrative is an essential part of medicine and should be integrated more into healthcare. Do you believe that writing, and particularly narrative medicine, should be standardized in medical education beyond just a want to among physicians and more into part of their training in a standardized manner?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, you think of the difference between um, intelligence and wisdom, right? Mm. Everyone who gets into medical school or nursing school, they're smart, right? They all graduate top of their class. They pass their exams. They're all smart. But being wise is quite different, and I think you know it when you see it. Either you, the trainee, or you, the patient, when you're with a doctor who's smart, that's great. It's different to be with a doctor who's wise, or a nurse who's wise, right. because wisdom, you know, smart as you have the facts, and you know our computers make us even smarter. But wisdom is how to use them, whether to use them, how do they rank up against each other? What what advice can I? offer you? What What can I suggest to you? How can I help you grapple with these? That's wisdom. And 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 I think that we need that in medicine, right? We're at the point where we can't learn all the facts. You know, there's way more facts than our, you know, puny human brains can absorb. And so we rely on up-to-date and Hippocrates and all, you know, all these handy uh, algorithms and we should use them liberally. I mean, why, why memorize the 50 kinds of vasculitis? It's a waste of your neurons, you know, you rely on your computer for that. But- You want to spend some of your neuronal space as a caregiver, as a nurse or doctor um, in seeing how the patient, you know, when you've given them the diagnosis of cancer, how are they incorporating that? Are they in denial? Can they accept this? Are they able to to move forward in life? Are they frozen in place? Because these things have very critical clinical outcomes. And so I think it is um, absolutely necessary. And I think that we should be having more of the creative side in there and not just because oh, it's touchy-feely, makes you feel better, my patient feel better. I think there there are really hard clinical outcomes. For example, I think that patients often speak to us in metaphor, right? Rare is a patient who walks in and says, oh, you know, I I have, you know, Crohn's disease, you know, emblazoned on their chest. No, they come say, I feel awful, right? And that's Mm -hmm. their metaphor. And we have to unpack that metaphor. And if we don't do that in a sophisticated manner, if we just focus on the manifest content of what the patient says, we will miss the diagnosis and the patient will go and find a, you know, a smarter or more, more sophisticated doctor who can think more broadly and more deeply. And, and so I think we make a lot of medical errors um, because we think very concretely. We don't think beyond the algorithm, beyond the factless. And when I, my last book is on medical error called when we do harm, and I'm intrigued by the issue, you know, there's procedural error, you know, Amputating the wrong leg, you know, which is awful, but those are pretty easy to correct because you can make the right checklist, but diagnostic error, making uh, a misdiagnosis or an incorrect or delayed diagnosis, that's much harder. You can't fix those with checklists because making a diagnosis is how we think and how we think is a metaphorical thing. You know, when patients come in with a variety of symptoms and we have to, you know, cross match and cross patch different parts of our brains and um, to try and put together the symptoms with this patient. Well, that's what poets do. That's what metaphors are. We grab from different parts of um, of the world, of our imaginings and try to put them together in unexpected and creative ways. And the really smart diagnosticians without even knowing it are thinking the way poets do.
0: I love how you phrase that because it is true. Patients speak to us in metaphors, but to play devil's advocate, in today's world of healthcare, we're trained in terms of pattern recognition. XYZ symptoms correspond to diagnosis A, B, and C. Do you see the metaphorical thinking as a complement to it or in a certain way kind of going against the grain with how we're currently taught medical principles?
1: I mean, I think it can be a compliment because you're right, pattern recognition is important and you're right and probably, you know, One out of two times, 50% of the time, you're right. Person walks in with, you know, reflux symptoms, it's GERD, you know, you got it. And if you spent three hours, you know, analyzing the metaphors, you'd never finish your day. And I think pattern recognition is very important to, to, you know, getting through uh, all the patients and all the symptoms that come your way. However, on top of that, or sometimes in addition, there are other things that don't fit together. Patients will have Mm. easy to spot GERD, but when you treat and resolve their symptoms, they're still not feeling well. And well, why is that? You know, is there something else going on? You know what? What is you know what is the, the the tapestry of their life for which solving their clinical problem isn't actually making them feel better? And I think lots of patients leave our offices or our wards, and we've cured their symptom or their disease, but they do not feel healed. They do not feel full and whole again. Um, and we have to you know metaphors also about context, right? Metaphors make sense. In, or make a different type of sense in different kinds of contexts, and each patient does bring their context. And woe is the doctor or nurse who you know ignores that context. You're right. right. For a totally healthy person, you cure their GERD, fine. But for our older patients, or patients with chronic illnesses, or patients struggling with socioeconomic challenges, societal challenges, you know, we solve one little problem, and they're still suffering. And bearing witness to that suffering, and trying to find ways, you know, to help our patients at the very least be heard in their suffering is an important thing. And again, that's thinking more like a poet. I mean, much of what we do in medicine is to bear witness. We can't solve our patients' immigration issues or their economic issues or their bad shoes or, or their you know, alcoholic husband who you know um, who has walked out on them. We can't, oh, those things do cause stress. And of course the stress will affect their blood pressure, their diabetes, so we, we can't ignore them because they really have clinical ramifications. But we can be there to, to be with them in their suffering. And that's, again, thinking in the nuance, the shades of gray. And how do we um, ready ourselves to be there with our patient suffering? Um, algorithms and PowerPoints don't do very well for that. But reading poetry, great literature or art or music or anything that, that allows your brain to think more subtly then enables us to stand with us or our patients, to be strong for them, to be able to recognize and, you know, shoulder some of their burden in a way that doesn't crush us and then offers them, you know, that few more degrees of of ease in their
0: life. And I think that's a testament to what BLR represents. I think there's an interesting passage you had mentioned where you say, BLR explores healing and is also part of the healing process itself. For those who read the publications and participate in the writings Do you see manifest improvements either in their mental framework or actual improvement in their care management?
1: Well, you know, we we're not able to do the clinical trial to test that, but I can share this one anecdote. Um, Many of you probably have either seen the show, read the book, um, Little Fires Everywhere or Everything I Never Told You by Celeste Ng. But many years before she was this wonderfully and well justifiedly famous author, she was a beginning writer and submitted a story to B.L.R. Uh, more than ten years ago, and uh, called "Girls at a Play." And we we probably was a wonderful story. We published it. I even remember the meeting where we talked about it, and then we nominated for um, a prize, which it won a Pushcart Prize, and which was wonderful. And so we were thrilled to see her success in later years. Only found out. Just a few years ago, she was interviewed the New York Times and she talked about when she was working on her first novel, she suffered from a very severe case of postpartum depression and she simply could not write. And she even said to the reporter, I thought I was, I'm never going to write again. And then her story got accepted to BLR, a story that had been rejected maybe 17 or 18 times. It got accepted and then it got this prize. And she said it was this huge boost of confidence and sort of it wasn't the only thing, obviously, but really helped her kind of start to see the way out of the postpartum depression into this really wonderful uh, writing career. So we're thrilled to have been part of someone's healing process. And I know for many authors, sometimes it's the first time they'll write about an episode that happened to them or a family member. Maybe they'll write a nonfiction or maybe they'll write a poem. But as a way to unload some of the the uh, pent up pain, this is a way to help that move along.
0: Particularly in this era of physician burnout and well-being, the art of writing as a discipline can do wonders for stress and for mental framework. For those who may not be as comfortable writing, how much of a benefit can they glean from reading BLR or just reading narrative medicine in general?
1: I think there's a lot because, well, the way Ed Hirsch said it, um, is that when you then read the poem or the story, you start to absorb some of that. You, you don't have to have written it yourself, but here's someone, and he was saying, who wrote a poem 300 years ago, and suddenly across three centuries, there's a connected uh, connection of, of emotion. So when you read and say, wow, I, I felt that way, or I didn't even know I felt that way, or I recognize in how my grandmother felt in this moment. Um, I remember very early on in BLR, we published uh, a pair of poems um, about it was two sisters taking care of their father with dementia, and 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 helping him put on his socks, and trying to keep to protect his dignity even while helping him with this very basic thing. It was such a beautiful poem. It was just called "Socks," I think. And <laughs> I had so many comments on that poem of people who've been in the caregiving situation. Just it just clicked with ah, oh, that is how I feel. And they didn't have to write the poem but they have an acknowledgement that yes, this is a universal feeling. So I think there's much to be gained. I mean, this is why the classics are the classics. People go back and read them because they continue to, to bring, you know, hope and healing and and relief. And and as Ed Hurst said, you know, literary magazines are, it's like the news, Here are the new writers who are adding to this, the contemporary writers, people from communities that maybe haven't been heard from much before. we want to hear those voices because we, you know, we want to really uh, help um, promote the universal. I mean, the one thing about illness is that, you know, it really is universal. I mean, you really is nothing that really can protect you no matter how much bran or tofu you eat. You know, a <laughs> pandemic can happen or, or, or genetics can happen and, or it's your child or your elderly parent that you're caring for yeah. will always be facing this. You can never escape the, the, you know, the medical profession. I mean, you know, listen, maybe you'll go through life. You'll never need an accountant, you know, God, God love Mm -hmm. you. Maybe you won't need a roofer or a plumber, but you're not going to escape the medical profession. And even if you do, there's going to be another pandemic and it's going to be in your face anyway. So we're, we're all in this, you know, our bodies exist X amount of years and that's it. They're all going to falter at some point. Um, And so we're all going to face these mortality issues. And so we're all, I mean, life is, just one long sort of negotiation session with with life and, and these and the arts offer us ways to to go through that without you know, being completely crushed.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful way of explaining it. It's a negotiation with the self. Recently you wrote an article entitled COVID COVID Writing Goes Viral. And it was with Dr. Topo, Dr. Vargasy, and yourself. What was the impact of that article? Knowing that so many people were using this as a time of self reflection, did you see a lot of validation out of that article? Yeah, you know,
1: we were all commenting on, on I think we call it COVID writing goes viral because there was such a um, an explosion of writing, both narrative writing and, and also poetry. And I, and I will say that, you know, social media, which pre pandemic, you know, I saw sort of like this nice little addition. But during the pandemic as a physician, I suddenly saw the value, you know, um just even technically like tips on 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 ventilator management and proning all these things and 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 reviews on on, on blood gas management uh, and and new clinical trials coming out so I, I suddenly saw the value of this sort of crowdsourcing of knowledge of sharing like people in Seattle were giving their you know early views and then in New York we could help other people. Um, but the other thing that flourished during uh, on social media during the pandemic was poetry, because mm-hmm. poetry is short, it's brief, it's concise, and it really fit well into the social media format. A- and again, people had this strange, terrifying new thing was coming. How do you, you know, work with that? And so when we, you know, came to and did this event and, and podcast and article on that, we just wanted to sort of just step back and acknowledge, wow, we really you know, just like our, our first BLR reading, right, the day of the invasion of Afghanistan, that people do turn to the arts in moments of fear and vulnerability, because that is a way to, when you don't have facts that can answer your
0: questions, you,
1: you need other ways to grapple with your questions.
0: Certainly, BLR played a major role in that, and yourself included. Kind of putting yourself in a forward-looking front post-pandemic. What is the future of narrative medicine and what's BLR's role in that future? Well,
1: I see narrative medicine is really just being subsumed into medicine. I mean, it really, it, it's so obvious that it needs to be part of of all healthcare workers training because we all, you know, especially during the pandemic, you could see even the, you know, the person pushing the gurney often might be the one communication with the patient. And, and so we all had a role in narrative medicine, no matter what our professional titles were. So I hope and anticipate that narrative medicine becomes just an obvious part of medicine, the same way, you know, pulmonary and renal, all the other parts of medicine are obvious parts. Um, and of course we hope that BLR is, you know, there to be part of it. I mean, one of the things we have been doing is creating reading guides for various topics. Mm. You know, so we have one on disability and one on environment on nursing. We have one um, on war um, and we have a whole medical humanities curriculum where you can use, you know, contemporary writers who are using poetry fiction, nonfiction, to, you know, complement working with the classics. So um, I hope as medical schools and nursing schools see the creative side um, as being essential to to training for our next generation of doctors and nurses, that they turn to BLR and that we have, And I'll admit, you know, short things to read, right? It's very hard for medical students to fit in, you know, a Dostoevsky novel, um, <laughs> even though those are great to read, but but you know, uh, a twenty five hundred word story—that's something you could read and you know in, in a day and, and be able to talk about—or a poem you can read in, in the moment. So we hope that that um, literary fiction, literary magazines, offer this really convenient but you know uh, substantial way to sort of nourish the the other side of medicine that that is not quite fully addressed by the textbooks.
0: I think the pandemic really validated so much of what you personally and BLR. We're doing over these past few years. And when we talk now about burnout, we get into this world of subjective framing of physicians and healthcare providers in general. But inevitably, we try to create metrics around that, or we try to quantify what is inherently qualitative. Does that frustrate you that we try to think in those terms, or should we try to keep the abstract the abstract?
1: You know, I think it's just impossible. I mean, we measure what's easy to measure. um, And that's limited even in medicine. You know, listen, I I get my diabetes quality report every quarter on my percentage of patients with an A1C under seven, under eight. That's great, but that captures such a small amount of what diabetes care is. And in fact, what it doesn't capture, what about my patient with an A1C over 13, completely out of control sugar. You know, if I'm nasty to them, they'll leave and then my numbers look better. If I work hard to engage them in care and they stay in care, my numbers look worse. So which is a better doctor with a, a good score, or a low score, you know, uh, or a poor score? It's, it's it's so limited. And even more so when it comes to measuring this side of, um, of healing. And the fact that we can't measure it doesn't mean we should ignore it. I mean, it, I think it's just a small mind way of looking at it. And I know that, yes, we want to put it all in a spreadsheet and show our outcomes mm-hmm. and yada, yada, yada which I agree, but some things can't be measured. So do we ditch them just because we can't measure them? Um, but when you're with an individual patient, you know, and you feel that moment of connection. And I, you know, Rafael Campo, who is um, published often in the BLR, he often will give poems to his patients. He has a whole file, you know, because his poems for diabetes and poems for emphysema to share oh, wow. in the moment, um, because that can be a way of of, of connecting with a patient. And and so you you get that, we can't record it. No one else knows it occurred but you and the patient, but that's okay. That's a value. So, some things we're just going to have to go with them because they're the right thing to do.
0: I think that's important because when you express yourself to patients in a certain way, you get the nuanced expression back in return. And I think that's just part of good patient care. Dr. Ofrey, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for your insightful responses. I want to leave you with one question to kind of ponder over for the listening audience. When people talk about narrative medicine, who may not be introduced to that field or understand its role in all of medicine, they think of it almost like you're hearkening back to the roots of medicine. But in many ways, narrative medicine and the concept of narrative is part of the future of medicine. Can you provide a little bit of contrast on the past and future and the role of the story in shaping healthcare? Well, I think
1: it's really both. I mean, if you look at the traditional case report, that was a narrative because we didn't have, because we didn't have advanced imaging or laboratory values. All we had was the story. And, and if you think back, excuse me, if you think back, why were shamans and healers so successful, Um, you know, back in the day when we didn't have antibiotics because they paid attention to the story and the connection to the patient, yeah, we have, a, we have a few more tools now, which is wonderful. Now, sometimes they're a crutch, but they're they're critical <laughs> tools. Um, but um, I think we sort of have a little bit of a lag that we sort of started ignoring the story in favor of, of all the, the fancy treatments. Um, and I think at some point to the exclusion of that, and, and we really lost something. I think patients really feel the sort of industrialization of, of healthcare and feel very alienated. And so we're, I think hopefully on the inflection point of realizing that, you know what, We really do need both that it's not, it's not sufficient to just, you know, check the right box for the right treatment. That's only part of it. And so we are recognizing that narrative is critical. And and so I I feel like we're just really completing a circle uh, of that. And I mean, how great that we have these amazing tools that we have antibiotics and, and MRIs and functional PET scans. I mean, we'd be much worse off without them, but we can do those and we can, hear the patient's story about their vulnerability, their fear, their pain, their their, um, their unknowingness, um, the worry about their family, those are critical things too. And we know when we take care of patients, if we don't, the patient who's worried about their family, if we don't tend to that, we're not gonna get anywhere And We can't treat their illness if all that's on their mind, you know, is what's gonna happen to their family. We have to really tend to both.
0: Well said, I think both complete the circle of healthcare and the patient care itself. So with that, Dr. Ofri, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. And I want to congratulate BLR on 20 years. It is the gold standard in narrative medicine. And I would encourage everybody to take a look at the content and review the latest publications. Thank you so much. Have a great day.